You know, when law enforcement officers and first responders start opening up and telling their story, it is very inspiring and encouraging for others. In fact, it might be that final push that most need to seek help. My next guest you're going to love, Michael Sugru, is on the show. He's a best-selling author of Relentless Courage, retired law enforcement professional and U.S. Air Force veteran. You do not want to miss this show. Michael Sugru, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the CJ Evolution Podcast, a top-ranked show, top-ranked because of you, the listener and supporter. Thank you so much for the encouragement over the years, and a special thanks to you, the first responder professional, the criminal justice professional. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Remember this, you are honored, cherished, and above all, you are loved. Please be safe and keep up the fantastic work. You know, as we head into this holiday season, I know a lot of you are suffering, suffering in silence. It's a depressing time of the year for a lot of people, maybe you. If you are struggling right now, do not wait. Reach out for help today. FHE Health and the Shatterproof Program for First Responders are here for you. Give me a call right now, 303-960-9819. I can help you get the help you need and deserve. All calls are confidential. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm very excited to have my next guest on the show. He's been on before, but it's been a while. I am glad he's back. Michael Sugru, what's up, brother? What's up, brother? What's going on? Thanks for having me back on. Well, I appreciate it. And for those of you who don't know, Mike's former Leo, former veteran of the United States Air Force, and he's also a best-selling author, Relentless Courage. If you don't have the book, go out and get it. So for the people who don't know your background, Mike, I know you went through a lot of different tragedies in your life. Can you tell the listener a little bit about your background, your work in law enforcement, and what you're doing now, sir? Absolutely. So I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. And technically, my law enforcement career started eight years old, believe it or not. I was a uh, <laughs> police volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department. And then in high school, I was a police explorer for the Richmond Police Department, uh, went off to college, ended up getting a scholarship through the Air Force and ROTC. And I went through Cal State Sacramento, graduated with a criminal justice degree. And I went straight into security forces as a second lieutenant. 
And my original plan was to do just four years, but it ended up being almost six and a half years active duty. I served in the Middle East, South America, Europe, all over the United States. Um, I miss it. It, it definitely yeah. was a phenomenal I miss it experience. Too, yeah. And uh, my only regret is getting out as early as I did. I wish I would have stayed in longer on the reserve side. Yeah. And you were part um, of task force Raven, right? I mean, what Ra Raven or is that, am I saying that right? So I was a Phoenix Raven or Phoenix Raven. And that's a subset of security forces. It was actually established after nine 11. Mm -hmm. And the main purpose of security forces is to embed with air crew and aircraft. And they go to hostile or danger zones where there is no embedded physical security and they provide direct security and protection for the air crew and the aircraft. Wow. Cool. Um, so, you know, phenomenal program, very proud to be a member of that. And each one of us, you get a specific number and it's chronological. It's, it's your number forever. And my number is one, one, seven, three. Um, and I think currently as of today, I think there's roughly in the whole history of the program, there's a, a little over 3000 total air force Ravens since this wow. program. So it's a lead, lead program. So, a phenomenal wow. experience. But after that, I got out in 04. I separated as a captain, honorably, of course. And I went straight into civilian law enforcement. I got hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's probably about 15, 20 minutes outside San Francisco, 10 minutes from Oakland. And while I was there, a bunch of different assignments. I was a field training officer, an in-house SIU detective. I was undercover for two years on a California state drug task force, eventually was promoted to Sergeant and was running patrol teams. And I was also a driver instructor and a public information officer. Wow. I did it all. <laughs> did a lot. Yeah. It's, it was, it was quite the journey. And I, you know, I planned to do a lot more, but some big things happened that changed my path, changed my trajectory. And I, I medically retired back in 2018 for what I call post-traumatic stress injury versus disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I, and thank you for your service, brother. Um, and I, 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 it's interesting you call it injury. I like calling it industry, uh, injury, I could talk injury too, or illness, just because I think there's a stigma behind the word disorder. You, oh, know, absolutely. you, know, you know what I mean? Like you can't overcome, you can't overcome a disorder as opposed to an illness or an injury. You know what I mean? So I do. I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, the facts are that it's proven, you know, you can look at brain imaging, brain scans, but exposure to repeated trauma actually causes a physical change, chemical change in the human brain. And it's no different than if a police officer, you know, injures their back or their knee or their shoulder on duty. You know, we have many officers and, and all first responders for that matter, who sustain mental injuries as a result of all the trauma that we're exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you went through some dark periods, right, brother? I mean, are you, are you willing to talk about that? I am. So, you know, I was involved in a very traumatic incident. It was a fatal shooting where a man with a butcher knife was trying to kill a couple inside a condominium. And then he turned on myself and my officers and he tried to kill us. And unfortunately, you know, I had to take his life to save their lives mm -hmm. But that incident, it forever changed me. And yeah. at the time, you know, I, I immediately noticed that I was having nightmares. I was isolating. Um, I really felt there was nobody I could talk to about how I was feeling. And so I just shut it inside. I pushed it away, pretended like it wasn't there. 
Mm-hmm. I started drinking too much, started having marital problems, health problems, issues at work. I mean, it, it really snowballed. And, and for me, I think it wasn't the shooting it, the, itself, but I think it was the event that kind of pushed me over because there was numerous, you know, traumatic incidents before that. But I got to a point where I literally didn't want to be here anymore. I started putting mm-hmm. myself in dangerous situations at work purposely hoping that I got killed in the line of duty. So, you know, the opposite of suicide by a cop, I was hoping for suicide by bad guy. And it was actually the actions of my best friend, John, who um, I talk about in the book. He actually has his own chapter in the book. He's a Vietnam veteran. He was a 35 year reserve officer with my department, but he tried to kill himself when I was on duty. And he actually saved my life by trying to take his own life. Wow. Jeez. I mean, what was the catalyst moment for you, brother, where you said, I need help. I mean, I I need to change course. I I can't keep going like this because people who have suffered have been in those situations. Either they do something horrible, as you know, Mike, or they, they, they reach for the phone and ask for help. So what was your moment where you said, I need to change direction? Yeah, I remember it just like yesterday, but so my best friend, John, tried to kill himself um, shortly after Thanksgiving of November 2016. And it was actually in December on the anniversary of my shooting, which was December 27, 2016. Um, I, I'd already, you know, been separated. I'm going through this nightmare divorce. I didn't have my daughter. I was off of work. And as in every year leading up to the anniversary of my shooting, I really start to feel it. Um, it really comes back and I associate that event, unfortunately, with Christmas because I started the shift right after Christmas mm-hmm. and I'd gone to the gym that morning because that's one of my coping mechanisms. Um, you know, I still work out today every single day because that it helps control Absolutely. my stress. Yeah. And when I went that day, it, it wasn't working. And I remember I left the gym. I went to go drive actually to Chipotle to get something to eat. And I was in my car and I couldn't get out of my car. I literally just started bawling in my car. And I sat there for two hours until I actually finally pulled out my cell phone. And all I could think about was the guilt that I had when my friend, John tried to kill himself because I had no idea. And I started blaming myself Mm -hmm. and I started thinking that what's going to happen with my daughter, you know, is she going to blame herself? What's going to be the effect on her when I'm not here? And it was because of that. I finally picked up that phone. I called the on duty watch commander with the Walnut Creek police department And I said, look, I need help. I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's what started my process of eventual recovery from post-traumatic stress. Jeez. Well, I am. Thank you for sharing, Mike. I mean, I know it's always difficult to to talk about. It's always difficult for me to talk about my stuff, but it's also for me, I don't know if it is for you, brother. It's also therapeutic in in a lot of ways. When I start talking uh, about my journey, everybody has a journey, um, but it's therapeutic you know, and, and it helps me. So I don't, I don't know if you feel that way when you start talking, I know you talk all over the place, all around the country. Um, and hopefully the more you talk about it, the more it helps. You know, I never envisioned this and I owe it to one guy, his name is Dan Birdie. He, um, ran a podcast and he had asked me to be a guest on a show before I'd been on any podcast. I hadn't shared my story publicly with anybody. And I said, look, you know, I I don't want to do it. And he literally hounded me for months and said, look, I'll drive the two and a half hours to you. I'll meet you. I just need an hour of your time. And it was that event that literally changed my trajectory, changed yeah. my life's mission. And I did the interview 
And the first thing, like you already said, is it was like this big burden got lifted off my shoulders because yeah. I was so ashamed and embarrassed and I was trying to control this. I was trying to control it from getting out. And once it was out there, the good, the bad, the ugly, I started literally getting messages from all over the world on LinkedIn and other platforms of people that watched that interview and talked about how it resonated with them and how they could relate to it. And they started sharing their stories with me. And so, yeah, every time I speak, it's like a little bit more of that burden comes off my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really is amazing. And you're doing it in a way, obviously, where you're, you're sharing your story, but you're also, you know, I always tell people if I can re reach just one person out there and, and try to help one person, you know, maybe take that step forward because it is frightening. Mike, you've been there. I mean, I, for me, it was like my ego and of course fear. And I was scared to death. What are people going to think about me? Until I got to a point where I was like, I don't give a crap what what people think. I mean, the one thing I learned in my treatment, and I don't know if you'd learned this, brother. I mean, you probably did at some point. I mean, I had to be very selfish when it came to to my own well-being. Not in a way where I was not paying attention to my family or not caring about people. But you have to care about yourself first. You have to love yourself first before you can love other people. And we're all damaged to some degree. You know what I mean? Especially in law enforcement. I do. And I, you know, I tell people every time I'm not unique and I'm not special and nothing I went through is unique or special. It's just, I'm willing to talk about it now openly and put it all out there. But what I found is that there's countless of our brothers and sisters, first responders, veterans, active military, who have all gone through very similar things or had the same feelings. And I learned that I'm not, I wasn't alone because for so long, I thought something was wrong with me. I thought mm -hmm. that, you know, no one's going to understand the feelings that I'm having. No one's going to get it. No one's going to have my back. And it turns out there's countless people and there's countless resources out there available that I had no clue until I started this journey. Do you think it's a, by in saying that, and I, there's so many resources out there. Do you think that leadership not all leadership but some i mean they've they failed to some degree uh in agencies again not all agencies but they failed in in taking care of their people better you know than than they should i mean we're not in the business we know that we're not in the business uh, we're law enforcement you know mike to, to go out there and arrest a bad guy investigate crimes and stuff so i think some of this is foreign territory to people like oh god we have to look inward and start take better care of our people but I do think some leadership out there is responsible for all the, you know, some of the problems we're seeing in law enforcement now. I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, in my book, Relentless Courage, yeah, one of the things that makes this book unique is that I talk extensively about what I call administrative betrayal, or it could be secondary trauma. And in fact, it's not usually the traumatic incidents that push first responders over the edge to the point where they want to commit suicide. Oftentimes, it's things that happen after the traumatic incident, yeah, how absolutely. they're treated, you know, how they're treated by their administration or how they're treated by their quote unquote leaders or what they thought was their family. And when this family turns your, their back on you, when you've literally invested everything in this and you've, you're putting your life on the line every single day thinking they have your back. And when you realize they truly don't have your back, that's what pushes people over the edge. And, you know, we need leaders to be open honest, but we need them to be vulnerable. You know, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. 
And we need to do a better job of sharing really what's going on or what's happening. Because if, if we as leaders want people to be open and vulnerable with us, we have to start with our own openness and our own vulnerability to make that happen. And I agree. And I think you, as, as you know, I mean, being a leader yourself, you know, and when you were a cop and, and I was too, I mean, meaning having the rank, I mean, you, you, for me, sometimes it was, well, I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to appear like vulnerable, but I agree with you, Mike. I mean, vulnerability is a superpower. At least I didn't always think that way, but I, I do now when you are vulnerable with people, in my opinion, when you're authentic with people and you can share with people, people relate to that. You know, I always told people, I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. I want to surround myself with people who are smarter than me, you know, and, and be vulnerable to some degree, because that's how I learn. Absolutely. And that was a big mistake I made because when I was a patrol sergeant, I wasn't vulnerable. I wasn't open. And, you know, I actually was the polar opposite of that. I became a real asshole and unapproachable because mm -hmm. I was dealing with my own internal things yeah. and I didn't want anybody to find out, or like you said, it's for me to appear weak. And, and that's the real issue right there is that, you know, a lot of times people will come off as not caring or, or just jerks, or, you know, but the real the real thing is that a lot of those people are dealing with their own issues yeah, exactly. and they haven't acknowledged them. They haven't dealt with them. And so, you know, I look at people differently now. Um, I don't judge. I'm open-minded. And of course now today I'm very vulnerable and open, but I wasn't that way when I was in the military, nor when I was a police officer. And that's what needs to change. Isn't it amazing how, at least for, for me personally is, I mean, I was, I was always, you know, somewhat empathetic for people who were suffering, but until you, until I went through my journey, I am much more, even though it took a while to get to that point to pick up the phone, I am much more empathetic now, not just to, for first responders that are suffering, but for anybody out there who is suffering as far as mental health and addiction and stuff like that. It, it always, it amazes me how you actually have to go through the shit sometimes to realize, oh yeah, I need to start being more open and more authentic to people. You know what I mean? I do. And it, you know, as a perfect example in the volunteer work I do and the speaking and the meetings I go to, I've met a lot of first responders who are addicts, who are alcoholics. And, you know, I spent two years undercover on a drug task force and I was a very black and white person. And now when I see people who are using or I see addicts, I think to myself, you know, what caused this? What kind yeah. of trauma did they have in their life as a child or growing up? And, and, you know, you said in the beginning, but we all have issues. We all have trauma. And, you know, so now I'm not a black and white person. I'm a very gray person. Yeah. And, and when you, you know, you start to meet people and I've, I've met first responders who have been convicted, who have spent time in jail and prison for, you know, using drugs. And the old me would have been like, I'm not going anywhere near those people. Like I don't respect them. I don't want to be associated with them. And now I've met some of the greatest people in my life who are actually former addicts and alcoholics who almost lost everything and they've turned their lives around, but I don't, I don't judge them. Yeah. I don't look down upon them, but the old me did. I have to be honest with you. Well, I the was the same, me, Mike, I was the same way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was the same way. I was one of those guys and it's just the culture and just how I grew up in law enforcement is, you know, okay. If you didn't have a star or a badge, I'm not going to associate with you or you're a bad cop out there screwing off. Okay. I'm not going to associate with you, uh, but I'm the same way now. I've had people on my show that have been in prison, yes. you know, and, and cops, I'm good friends with cops down here that have 
been, you know, users. And, you know, one got in a bad, I don't know if you know Brock Bevel, it got in an accident. Oh, I do. Great guy. Yeah, yeah. A great guy. Brock's a good yeah. friend of mine. He was yes. an undercover narc, you know, in Arizona. He got run over by a car. He got addicted to to opioids and all kinds of other stuff. It doesn't, he, he was just, but he was also going through, like you said, a lot of inner stuff, deep stuff that, so I agree with you, you know, I mean, you, you gotta, if you're one of those people that is judging out there, if you're a first responder, I mean, kind of step back sometimes, do your work, do your job, but step back and say, this person's probably going through some shit that you have no idea that he or she is going through. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So if you could give some advice to your young Mike self before you got into law enforcement, what would you would have given yourself? Well, the first mistake I made was that I, I made a conscious decision when I started the police academy that I would never bring the job home. I would never talk about the job with my family or my mm -hmm. loved ones. And that's the biggest mistake I made. So I would have told myself then that, to be open and honest, to communicate, to express, you know, when you come home and you're having a bad day and you're in a bad mood, that it's not them. It's something that you dealt with at work and to, you know, not go into graphic details about that with your family members, but to express that to them and just say, look, you know, I need a few minutes to decompress. You know, I had a really bad day today. There was a very bad car accident and let me just go upstairs, you know, take a shower, get my stuff together. I'll be back down and we can, we can talk, but if we don't do those types of things, our loved ones think that it's them. Yeah, they think that we're pissed off at them, that they did something wrong. And then they're walking on eggshells around us every time we come home, you know, and on top of that, you know, we're not, we're physically there, but we're not mentally there. And so, you know, focus on home and family. The job is just a job. I mean, for me, it was a calling like for most of us, mm -hmm. but in the end, it's your family, your, your spouse's your children especially are what matters most. And, and I made the mistake of putting my job ahead of them, you know, yeah. trying to chase that next promotion, that next position. In the end, that none of that stuff matters. You know, what matters is your family and your loved ones. Absolutely. Because you know what? The sun's still going to rise. I know you know this, Mike, but for the listener, if you leave your job tomorrow, the sun is still going to rise. The department's still going to go on. They're going to replace you probably like that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so yes. your relationships are the thing that matters. And I know exactly what you're saying because I went through that. I mean, I, I isolate myself, you know, go and be by myself, not, not say anything to anybody. And like you said, people are like, Oh shit, you know, what's going on? I, I guess I did something wrong. Communication. You know, it's so yes. easy. We're so good at communicating as cops and first responders, but when it comes to our personal life, my, and my experience, I sucked at it. Yes. Definitely. You know, we can talk down anybody, but then when it comes to, you know, just like you said, brother, just giving a few minutes of, I just need some time to decompress. Eh, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. <laughs> right. Because, you know, we're invincible. Nothing bothers us. Nothing hurts us. And nothing, you know, we're out there to protect and serve. And we're always in control. That's the thing is we're always on control on the job and we always want to be control at home. And, and that's not how it works. We need to give up that control when we get home. And I think when it, when it comes to treatment, you're exactly right. When it comes to treatment, part of my fear was giving up that control, right? Because now my, my treatment is now in the hands of somebody else. So it's, it's a, in most, you know, most of it. Um, and, and so it's that fear, you know, that scare, oh shit moment. You know, my God, I'm giving up control and I'm a type A, you know, personality. I want to be in control and you don't have that. So 
Talk about the book, Relentless Courage. And it and for the listener, again, this was a bestseller. It was the number one best-selling book for a while, right, brother? It was. So, you know, the book is called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's co-authored with Dr. Shauna Springer. Now, I've got to talk about her first and give you a little backstory of how this whole thing happened, because I never envisioned this. And Dr. Springer is the one that made this project happen. So she is a clinical psychologist. She's worked with combat veterans and first responders most her career. Um, she'd already written a couple books. She actually reached out to me on LinkedIn a couple of years ago before COVID uh, just to introduce herself and have a discussion and let me know what she's doing uh, with stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of PTS. And during that conversation, I told her my story in great detail. And she asked me at the time, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, it's funny you asked that because I've been asked that before. Mm-hmm. I said, but honestly, because of post-traumatic stress, my focus, my concentration, it's its not there. And I don't think I could ever do a project like that. I, I just don't think I can make it happen. And so we, we left the phone call as it was. A couple months later, she hits me back up and she says, look, your story, you know, I've heard hundreds of trauma stories in my work, but your story is sticking with me. And your story is going to resonate with countless people. It's going to save lives. And I want to make this project happen. And I knew at that second, I said, yes, let's do it. And so, and then COVID happened and we literally didn't meet in person for a year and a half. So I I didn't even meet her in person when we started this. (laughs) And uh, we did, you know, Zoom meetings, two hours long, every single week. And here we are today, but this book is very unique. And I want to kind of explain that why, why this book is so special. It's, it's not just my story, but every chapter, and there's about 15 or 16 chapters, it's split into two distinct parts. The first part is my story and my voice all the way back to childhood to present day. And the second part of every chapter, Doc Springer breaks it down and explains everything in layman's terms so that not just first responders, military, our loved ones, but anybody on the street, a random citizen can pick up this book and they're going to see the true human side, the true person behind that badge and behind that uniform. And, and the whole purpose of this book initially was to save lives, to, to prevent suicide, because that's, it's the number one killer of all first responders, mm-hmm. especially law enforcement. And what the book is doing now though, it's actually changing perceptions of the public of who we are and how we are and, and that we truly do care and that these things do affect us. So, you know, this book, it's saving lives and it's changing lives. And, and what I've heard from most everyone is that once you start reading this, you cannot put it down. Yes. I read it a while ago. You sent me a copy, buddy. I mean, uh, a while ago, and I love the book. I mean, it's, a lot of good information in there. You go in depth about your childhood and all this stuff that happened to you. And yeah, the book is amazing. And, and you know, it, I'm, I'm a little biased, but uh, Doc Springer is a gifted, gifted writer. I'm not. She is. And it's it's an easy read. I mean, you know, it's not complex. You know, what didn't mention is that Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who is a yeah. legend, who is one of the pioneers of resiliency and, you know, first responder trauma and military trauma, he wrote the forward for this book. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it was something I never envisioned either, but he is such a humble man. I mean, he he read it and he said, you, you know, of course, 
you know, when do you need it? I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. He's a great guy. Like you said, very, very humble, very down to earth. I wouldn't want to get in a a fight with him. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. (laughs) But what was the hardest thing? I mean, you meeting, you you meeting, would you write another book? Because I think you have another book in you probably have a couple more in you. I mean, what, what was the hardest thing about writing a book? The hardest thing for me was going that deep, that personal, all the way back to my childhood. And the blessing of it though, was that I had Doc Springer who would check in before and after every session. And we have such a relationship and a friendship that I can call her day or night anytime. So, you know, I I'm taking advantage of a culturally competent therapist, you know, to check in and talk about this because this drained me. I mean, it literally took a toll Mm -hmm. on me to write this because I bear my soul. I mean, some very bad, ugly things, you know, I put it out there. And and like you said, you know, we all don't want to be judged. We wonder what are people going to think of us? And, you know, I just did it. I'm like, you know what, this book isn't about me. It's about everyone else. And I'm going to put it out there. So people know they're not alone. And 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 that's the thing. And there's, there's a power in that too. When, When you, when you are, start talking about yourself because i think a lot of us especially first responders we don't like talking about ourselves that much especially when you dig deep into the personal stuff but for me i mean it when you start releasing that going back to what we were talking about earlier there's a power in that a good power meaning you're taking back control of your life you know you're taking back that power it's not those things that happen to you are not in control over you anymore, if that makes sense. I mean, it's like, you're you're not defined by what happened to you in the past. That's not who you are. You know, I'm not talking to you specific. I'm just talking in general. But for me, it was like, okay, now I have my power back, you know? And I don't know if it was like that for you. It was, I mean, absolutely. Like I said, cause I, I try to control everything. And- yeah, exactly. I was trying to keep this all inside in the first place, which was what led me down this path. And then, you know, even once I went through my recovery, I didn't talk about it or share it with anybody because I was thinking that, you know what, I don't, I don't want this to get out. I don't want them to, you know, look at me differently and and look down upon me and judge me. And the truth is that, you know, people actually respect that. And the ones that matter, they appreciate it. And they go, Oh, I had no idea. I can't tell you how many times, from my family, my friends, my coworkers, they all say, I had no idea. And it's like, well, yeah, because we're so good at putting up this front when we're in our uniform that nothing bothers us and everything is all good, that we fool everyone around us. And and who's going to get, Oh, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. You know, most people have no idea what is going on in our minds and our hearts. You know, when when I'm talking about first responders and, you know, we deal with these in negative ways like drinking, gambling, you know, extramarital affairs, porn addictions, what have you. But that's how we cope and deal with these feelings and emotions. And we suppress it and we get this temporary fix where we feel better. And then it just gets worse and worse. It never gets better. Yeah. And how, what what idiot out there is going to criticize somebody? I'm sure there are. You probably know, Mike. I mean, I mean, there's always people out there criticizing people, but I mean, what kind of person would, would criticize somebody like you coming forward and saying, look, I'm bearing my soul in the hopes to help some other people out there. This is my life. I've been through some shit. I want you to learn from me so you don't make the same mistakes. I mean, what, what are people going to say about that? I mean, why wouldn't you encourage that? I know I was encouraged. I was like, I was freaked out, but like you, I started getting messages from all around the 
country in the world saying, you know, congrats. Thank you for coming forward. I'm proud of you. So that goes back into, for me, it was okay. My God, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not weird. I'm not abnormal. I mean, people actually support me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. And you said like normal is the key. Like we're human. Yeah. We have emotions. We have feelings as much as we don't want to admit that. And that is normal. Yeah, you know, absolutely having a reaction to something very horrific and very traumatic. Yeah, that is normal, but yeah, we suppress absolutely. that. Absolutely. So, you know, absolutely. I mean, in, in what I'm speaking, you know, I know there's people out there listening that are saying me too, me too, because it's so common. But we don't think it is because we don't talk about it. Yeah. And I think it's a cultural thing with I mean, I, I know it is, you know, some departments are better than others, but every department has its own culture. You know that. But I think some departments are better than others. But I still, we, I still think we, I think we've come away. I th still think we have a long way to go in terms of people actually coming forward, because it's it, like I said, it's a cultural thing in each department. Each department has their own culture. Some departments are like, screw it, suck it up, drive on. You know, after a critical incident, other departments are like, oh, we're going to debrief. We want you to talk to somebody, things like that. But I still, I still think we have a lot of work to do. We do. We have, we have a long ways to go. It is getting better every single day, but there's much, much more work to do. And, and just look at the suicide numbers. Yeah. That's all you have to do is look at year over year, the suicide numbers. And that is the real gauge of how we're doing. And that Absolutely. shows that we need to do better. So what's next for you, brother? What's on the horizon with Michael Sugru? You know, you can't tell I, me you probably got some secret projects and shit going on. <laughs> I get asked that all the time, but I'll be quite honest. Like I'm retired and I have a 12 year old daughter. I know she's beautiful. By the way, I see her on social media. She is. And and she is my focus. You know, I have her full time, half the time, and that's what I'm focused on. So I'm focused on living life and enjoying life to the fullest. It's something that I didn't do when I was working. And so I don't have any big plans or crazy things in the works. I mean, I will be speaking occasionally, like I'm speaking in February in Kansas at the statewide gang investigators association training conference. Um, I'm, there's a documentary that's going to be coming out soon, but you know, mainly it's just being a dad and living life. Absolutely. That that truly is my focus. Absolutely. And that's what it should, that's what it should be about. You know, I mean, those relationships and spending time with your kids, brother. Now for the book, how can people go and snatch up relentless courage? So this book is only available on Amazon. Relentless courage is only available on Amazon. We have, soft copy, hard copy, and it is on Kindle. Uh, we've actually sold it, I think, in five countries so far. So the UK, Australia, Canada, Germany, the US. Um, people keep asking about an Audible version. Unfortunately, that's not in the works. I don't I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, for right now, it's either Amazon or if there's a book signing event or a speaking event. That's, that's really the only places you'll be able to pick this up. Awesome, brother. If people want to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you, brother? A couple different ways. So LinkedIn, um, just look up my name, Michael Sugru. I'm on there every single day. Um, I run a couple pages on Facebook and Instagram. They have the same names. So the first one is Sergeant Michael Sugru on both platforms. And the other one is First Responders First. And just send me a message on any of those platforms and I'll definitely get back to you. Michael Sugru, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you for the courage and telling your story and what you're doing now and helping our brave men and women everywhere. And of course, your amazing book, Relentless Courage. Everything we talked about today, folks, will be linked up in the show notes. God bless you, brother. 
anything I can do for you, any way I can help you, please let me know, my friend. Likewise, brother. Thank you again. All right. Bye-bye. Such a great show with Michael. So inspiring, so motivational, living proof that you too can get better and move on to a better life. If you love this show, check out the video of this podcast, CJ Evolution Podcast on my YouTube channel. We'll see you there. Until next time, be safe.